Okay, we are live. John Reed, I'm back. For those of you who missed me for a couple of weeks, yeah, I was on other people's video shows. I've learned the hard way I can't do my show in other people's shows. So that's what happened. Uh, hopefully, I won't get invited on any shows for a while. Anyhow, this time I got Bonnie Tinner back from Raven Intel. How are we doing? Great. Glad to be here on a Friday afternoon. Bonnie's going to be revealing some fresh statistics and analysis on the keys to project success, which we all need more of. So this is going to be a fun reveal, Bonnie. Thank you for preparing your your data for us today. You've got top 10 keys to project success coming out in this mm-hmm. show. That's going to be mm-hmm. fun. Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about those uh, telltale metrics to know if projects were uh, success or failure in some cases. Yeah. And I'm also going to going to piggyback on my uh my stump speech. I have these like things I have to be careful because sometimes I grind on them too much. Like people start feeling like, Oh, you keep talking about this, but lately it's been about smaller SIs and why they don't get nearly enough attention and that they deserve a lot more consideration by customers than the, than the, the household names that we uh, can all conjure up. This has obviously happened in the context of my SAP rise coverage because I've been asking where the smaller consultancies are there, but this is a broader concern than SAP. Um, and Bonnie has some interesting data that backs up my arguments, which is really cool. So looking forward to getting into that a little bit mm-hmm. as well. And it's been a very eventful week because uh, uh, a longtime colleague that has influenced both of our thinking, Jarrett Pazahonic, has ridden off into the hills. He's announced his retirement from SAP Consulting. And uh, and being a provocateur in the community to advocate for better projects, and he became famous for his uh, uh, contempt for what he called the Wild West of SAP consulting. But his concern was always around, you know, why are customers getting taken for a ride with uh, systems integrators and such that are not providing value, and why can't vendors like SAP get that under control? So now that Jarrett's gone, we're going to have to carry on and try to f- try to fix these projects, Bonnie. So. That's right. I mean, we can we can we can never replace Jarrett. I mean, he has a special place, um, and he always will in the HR type community and the enterprise software community. Um, but we'll do our best, right? We will try to carry on. But Jarrett, that that tributes for you, man. Um, wish you luck as you as you yourself ride off into that particular sunset and find new projects, which I'm sure you will. Um, but anyhow, uh, if you guys have questions or comments, as usual. This is a show where you don't save your comments to the end. I was on another webinar just yesterday. We'll try to take your questions at the end. I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, post your questions and comments continuously so you can get them answered. But just be careful because I am going to address them. So be careful what you say because I'm going to respond. Anyhow, uh, before we get into Bonnie's countdown, I just want to provide a little bit of background. First of all, Bonnie has been on the show before where we talked about notorious project uh, success tips and also mistakes that are made. Um, But I want to provide a little bit of um, background here. Bonnie, why do you do what you do? Like, what is it that Raven Intel does and why do you care about it? Why do you think it matters? Mm -hmm. Um, At the heart of uh, our business is all about taking the voice of the customer and amplifying it so that other customers um, make a good decision in a partner. So Raven Intel is a peer review site 
um, meaning that we get customer feedback um, after they complete a project, uh, an enterprise software project. So they go through an implementation or a migration, something like that. We ask them a series of questions about how that project was. And, you know, the main thing that we're solving for, and the, the reason I wanted to start this business was I wanted implementations um, to suck less for customers. I mean, implementations are really hard. Um, you know, as you know, we see the um, aftermath and uh, of really bad implementations happen because a lot of them hit the news wires. And I just wanted to make it easier for customers to prepare themselves as well as choose the best partner, uh, partner that's the best fit for them, knowing sort of what the previous experience um, and track record that an, an SI has. And you know, before Raven, nobody was looking at this information. Nobody was looking at this project work. And um, I just really wanted customers to know what they didn't know before they started on one of these big implementations or you know, we call them digital transformations, um, what have you. But, um, you know, I, I wanted people to have like a, a perspective on, on who's good and, and who's not. Brian Summer knows a thing or two about this. Uh, by the way, folks, if you hear too much of an echo uh, while during our broadcast, just type in the word echo, and then I'll, Bonnie will have to then put on her headset. But I'm letting Bonnie try without her headset. We'll see how it goes. Um, Brian says clients really need an advocate when evaluating between SIs and implementers. That's absolutely true, Brian. In fact, I just think that's been a big gap overall in product success. I know, Brian, you have filled that void in certain instances, and Bonnie has certainly dedicated her business to that. And uh, hi, hi, LinkedIn user. I know who you are. Happy Friday. Thanks for coming back. I'm sure you'll have a few interesting comments. So, so yeah, so, so, so Bonnie, you primarily started out in the HCM cloud space, right? But you're not limiting yourself to that. Is that right? That's right. So I've um, spent my entire career, you know, 20 plus years in the HCM or HR tech world. Um, and so that's really where I started when, um, you know, I, I started this business. Although we look at enterprise software projects now beyond just HCM. So we're looking at full ERP implementations, whether it's, you know, SAP or Oracle, um, any number of those software packages, Unit 4, um, it, you know, we, we look at, at their implementation success. So um, we've really scaled beyond HCM, but, you know, certainly that's where we got our start. This is kind of one thing that's been on my mind as far as, like, you think about, like the rise of user reviews and user ratings, like kind of a phenomenon across industries. Right. And, and we see, we've seen a lot of it in the software enterprise software arena, though, largely I would argue like the big sites like G2 are more value in the small business segment where software can be a little more genericized. I think it's, I don't think those rating services are having the same impact yet on large enterprise projects, though it is changing. And in certain categories, they are, and but we've always said where are the consulting ratings, right? And there's so been so many false starts in our industry. <laughs> I could I could go back to like 1997 to the first phone call I got of someone who was excited starting their own consultant rating business. But this is really at the heart of it, right? Which is that customers are having a variety of experiences with consulting firms, and and there should be some accountability around that. And how do we create a culture of accountability? And one way is 
is through peer reviews, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, sites like G2 Crowd or Gardner Peer Insights, I mean, there's, there's lots of them. They were really looking at user reviews about the software. And that's a very different sort of, um, you know, experience that, some, that that they're measuring versus we're looking at the implementation effort, the adoption of the software, and the effort to get that software live. So what we're looking at is, is very different. If you were a customer that was looking to implement a big enterprise software, you might be able to see a, what, what do people think about it from a user perspective, but you would never understand like, okay, from an overall implementation perspective, who is the consultant responsible for that? You know, what does their track record look like? That's just not the way that those sites are organized. And that's really the hole that, that Raven Intel fills. Right. And we could talk more about this as, as far as this whole notion of, of what constitutes success metrics, right? Because I would argue that what you're undertaking with your firm is trying to develop what those metrics should really look like. And we still, I think, I would argue we're in a fairly early stage in understanding what, I know this sounds crazy because we're <laughs> at enterprise software for a long time, but I think we're in the early stages of really defining what the right metrics are. I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about go live as a metric, but you know, I think that's one metric, but it's fairly limited, right? Like you hit your go live on time. Uh, my, my, my departed beloved friend, Michael Doan used to rail against this because he was like, yeah, you hit your go live, but you didn't really achieve anything. Um, so, so I think it's just interesting how we're still in the early stages of gathering the proper data to say, here's how we can define project success, you know? That's right. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of how should I say, uh, discrete data and, um, what I would consider more opinion or customer sentiment. You know, mm-hmm. we can we can measure like did the project get delivered on time, but that doesn't it's not a the say and end all of was it successful or was it delivered on budget? Those are two components of it. But you know, I have customers whose projects were late and over budget, but still were satisfied with the end result. And you know, they they would rate their partner and the project well. It achieved the mission. It just, you know, there was there's lots of reasons behind um, those two delivery points. And I think you're looking at, you know, service delivery. There's, you know, there's several components that you need to look at beyond just some of that discrete data. You know, was it delivered on time, on budget, you know, those, those type of things. And I think Brian is really hitting at the core of this issue when he raises this question for you are the fast implementation methodologies really viable to deliver value for large firms? Because when you end up obsessed with on time, then you get into these rapid implementation methods, but they don't always really cut to the heart of things. What do you think? Um, I, I would agree with, um, you know, there's, there's ways to do rapid installs that is a complete lift and shift and you gain no benefit from a new piece of software. In those situations, you can say, hey, I've gone live on time. It was rapid. I did it in, you know, um, 90 days, whatever that that timetable um, you know, that, that is rapid to you is. But that doesn't mean that that was a successful project if you have to do a ton of rework over the course of the next year to get it where it needs to be. So, you know, in general, the rapid implementations, um, you know, customers rate them lower than those that, um, you know, 
provided ample time to make sure that things were tested, there was change management, um, and that, you know, they were able to sort of bite off the larger, um, you know, process changes to make that implementation successful. The rapid stuff, um, you know, typically isn't as, um, as successful. Uh, we've got uh, Mark Sweeney here. He's not a fan. Fast implementation methodologies is a race to the bottom of the rate cards. So I think I would argue that's an appropriate level of cynicism around so-called fast implementation yeah. methodologies. Though I, I will say that one thing I do think, you know, in, in defense of some of this is that vendors used to have these elaborate as is to be, uh, you know, parts of the project that would take months to whiteboard everything. And, and I do think that was kind of a waste. And so I did appreciate some of the pressure on becoming more efficient, but um, you can certainly get get way overboard with that. Uh, we got another regular, sometimes snarky visitor. Thomas says, it is rather is avoiding the rate card. The fastest implementation works without an SI. Well, we may get to that, Thomas, when we get into Bonnie's, Bonnie's data. And Brian, you're asking a tons of questions. I'm going to get to your questions, but Brian, just bear with me a little bit. Um, I want to get to a few things with, with Bonnie, but I will get to your questions as well. Um, <clears throat> looks like we're going to have a, a vigorous chat today. People are, people are back in action. Yeah. Glad to see you guys. So this is good. Um, so, before we go on, I just want to give you a chance to do a shameless plug because you're not some huge uh, systems integrator. You're, you're Bonnie Tinder. So, so if a customer needs help evaluating like uh, firms that they could use, is that where you could step in? Is that a key role that you would play? Absolutely. The, um, you know, the, the beauty of Raven Intel is it's a free resource for a customer to look for a partner and to vet um, the partners that they might have and want a shortlist. Um, and so all of the research that are that is out on our site, you can read all of our reviews for free. Um, and so it really is a benefit for a customer to or a procurement team to be able to have um, this additional set of um, you know of information during a selection process. The other thing that um, you know, especially for customers is important. and you know, we were going to talk about like the 10 telltale metrics around a project. We, we want customers to come in and write reviews about their projects so that, number one, they can help other customers make the right decision and they can rate the partner that they chose. It really gives customers a voice. But the questions that we ask are really indicative um, to sort of look at your project overall and say, was this successful? Or not. I mean, those metrics that we're going to talk about are actually outlined in our review. So I would encourage you know any customer that's gone through a project do a post mortem internally, and you can use the Raven review as like a guide in terms of answering those questions and also helping others while you're you're going through that post mortem. Um, so those are I think two big keys. Both we have resources if you're making a decision, but also if you've gone through a project, we really would covet your information in terms of like what what wisdom would you import part to another customer so you can help others with your you know your wisdom so a couple more things so we got mark sweeney saying if you want value for money look to the specialist SMEs every time mark we're going to get to that uh you're preaching to my choir so keep preaching um neil raiden it's great to see you in here uh neil uh by the way 
has written some very cutting edge and important articles on Diginomica on AI and ethics and why that field is so deeply flawed. Thanks, Neil. He uh, points out here, I have to talk to a client that's given me documentation for blowing the ocean in a little over two years, every buzzword you can think of. Yeah, and, and to me, that's where I start to make the argument for more fast-track methodologies is when clients got too hung up on this type of arduous documentation because we now know that by the time you finish that, your entire business circumstances change anywhere. <laughs> anyway, you probably have been acquired or, or acquired somebody else and everything is back to square one anyhow. So, um, Mark is also putting in a plug for your article in ERP today. Um, so if anyone wants to post a link to that in the chat, uh, we will um, put that out to all the viewers. <coughs> and uh, and uh, Brian, Summer, you're bringing up blockchain. Don't do that, Brian. We, you know that I don't allow blockchain in this group <clears throat> as part of my show. So just, <laughs> just stop it with the blockchain. Uh, yeah, is it, Brian's advocating blockchain as the solution for... Uh, uh, customer accountability on projects with us SIs. I, I, I wish it were true. I wish he were really believing that, but no one does. So moving on. <laughs> uh, I do want to uh, let Bonnie finish her shameless plug. And if you don't like Bonnie's shame, shameless plug time, I just have to tell you, there's a bunch of big fish analyst firms with deep pockets out there that she's competing with. And I believe in what she's doing. So I'm going to give her a chance to amplify what she's doing. So if you don't like it, sorry. Um, but I do want to show you that Bonnie's got a bunch of uh, ravens, so she's really backing up the brand too. She's got a ton of ravens on her desk, so that's uh, right. And and shameless plug here, ravenintel.com is where you go, and you can find all of our research there. Okay. Actually, yeah, and um, you know certainly you know all of the stuff that we do is independent, and um, we are not partner, we're not Forrester. What we do is the legit voice of the customer. So, just don't just don't do any quadrants or trapezoids and I'll continue to support you. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we have quadrants and trapezoids, then no, but anyhow, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. So all right. So um we have a couple of things here. Before we get into your top 10, we also have a graphic, although I don't think I guess I could probably share my screen and, and show it, but mm -hmm. uh you did a you did a, a thing because you were responding to my thing on smaller SIs and you did uh, some data around product satisfaction delivery by consulting type. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the, um, you know, we ask a customer to rate their overall satisfaction with a project. And then we have, um, you know, several other KPIs. What we've done is sliced out all of our reviews um, by three main groups, the global consultancies. And those are ones that, you know, you probably think of as, you know, the, the big five, six, et cetera. They're the ones that have the, the big brand names and over a thousand consultants um, in general. You have then the independent SIs. And the way that we would define those is more of the specialists, the independents that, um, you know, focus on maybe one or two product lines, um, but they're the specialists in either a function like of human resources or with a certain product line being SAP or UKG or Workday, et cetera. So those are the independents. And then finally, um, we look in and broke out the reviews that we have by projects completed by a software vendor themselves. So that means that the customer never used a third party. They just went straight with their software vendor to do the, the project. And in general, what we wanted to see was, you know, which are rated the highest out of 10 
customers rate their project a one out of 10. The best rated or the highest rated in all of those three categories were the independent SIs. Um, and those are the specialists, as, as John, you referred to them earlier. Um, those averaged out of 10, an eight, essentially. And in general, those projects were more likely to be on budget by 17%. So if you went with an independent SI, you'd be more likely, based on our review data, to have your project delivered on budget by 17%. Uh, so, so that's essentially it. Versus the global consultancies, so the big guys, um, you know, those were rated um, slightly less, and that the, that was around a 7.1 out of 10 in general with, with the uh, satisfaction. The one thing to note there, though, is that, um, you know, those t- implementations typically tend to be more global, more complex, longer in nature. And so, you know, those, those weren't, you know, those are a little bit um, tougher to say, well, we can just make a broad brush here. So those were, you know, representative of a little bit more challenging type of implementation. Not to say that the implement, uh, the, the independence didn't also have global implementations, but it just represented a larger range, including, um, you know, smaller domestic sort of uh, projects. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say that a large SI can never complete a great project. I mean, what, what my, my, my stump speech is more about that customers should open up to a broader range of vendors during the evaluation process and decide which one is best. And I think your, your data supports that um, argument on my part. So I'm, really happy to see that because I would have been really sad if, if you had data that contradicted that. Uh, Mark, um, Mark Finner and Hey Mark, good to see you, hey, man. Uh, what an endorsement of Bonnie Tinner by Jared Pazahana, who we touched on earlier, giving her the ownership of his global SAP and success Raptors community, 19 K. Uh, yes, indeed. And in fact, um, Jared, it's kind of confusing, but Jared had two LinkedIn groups that were both global SAP success factors and HR groups. One of them is 30K. One of them is 20K. Bonnie now owns the 20K group by herself. She's running that, but she's going to be expanding it beyond SAP, right? So you want to just briefly say what you're going to do there? Absolutely. Um, So we're expanding the conversation to also include other uh, HCM tech vendors and, you know, Oracle, Workday, UKG, and, and others. So, um, you know, the idea is, is really to bring in a broader audience and, and talk about enterprise project success and, and um, you know, open up the community a little bit more. Yeah. And, and uh, Mark, to your point, uh, I'm one of the owners of Jarrett's 30K group, but Jarrett didn't trust me to run it by myself. So I have nine other co-moderators. So that, that gives you a sense of how much he trusts Bonnie. He, he needs nine other people to look after me. So that's, but I probably should have some adult supervision. So it's, it's fine. Um, but anyhow, it's, it's cool. And, and the nice thing about that too, is there will be, now there'll be more clarity about what those two groups are and aren't right. Because w- the larger one will remain SAP success factors focused and, and the one you're building, which will probably be bigger soon than the other one is going to be a broader HCM community around a number of vendors. So anyhow, uh, yeah. That's the LinkedIn scuttlebutt uh, that you need to know. Uh, Josh raises this point, and the vendors. Hi, Josh. Josh Greenbaum. 
By the way, if you care about project quality, you should also talk with Josh about his ProQ initiative or check the podcast I did with Josh. Josh, there's your shameless plug. Um, the vendors should support the smaller SIs instead of kowtowing to the GSIs. Yes. In fact, Josh has blogged about this topic, but indeed, uh, vendors, unfortunately, uh, often hand out self-serving awards to large SIs, and they keep the smaller SIs off the keynote stage, which, again, does a disservice to customers who should be exposed, in my opinion, to specialist SIs. And by the way, part of the reason I feel that way is I believe that the future of consulting is going to be much more industry-specific and verticalized, and that's one reason why I think specialist SIs are going to become more and more important. But, uh, and you know, and and I, I absolutely agree with that statement. You know, on the other hand, it's tough for a customer to um, you know risk going with an independent that nobody's ever heard of before, um, because they don't have the same you know brand strength as you know of the GSIs, um, and that's why I think it's important to definitely you know consider the independents absolutely in the process, but you want to make sure you're choosing an independent that also has that track record of success. And that's really where Raven data comes in is to help you effectively vet those independents because not all independents, not all small, small guys are created you know, equal. Totally. There's some duds out there. Um, but on the other hand, you can, you know, with an independent, get um, a more competitive deal, a specialist and be sort of a, you know, more of a big fish in a small pond when when choosing that sort of environment. Neil, I think you left me now, but good luck with that. That sounds like a lot of fun documentation there. And by the way, Neil, congrats on your new role, which I saw on your LinkedIn profile. Um, and, oh, and, and by the way, I, I want to make another point clear on my views on this, and I don't want to get it too far into this today. But even if you go with a smaller SI, which I tend to be biased towards, I still believe you should have an independent advisor connected to that project that is not tied to your prime vendor that is charged with overall audits and project health checks and stuff like that. That's a major theme of my ongoing shows. So we'll, I'll get back to that, but I don't think any vendor deserves carte blanche trust by the customer, even after a good decision is made. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it's time for a decentralized size. Well, I, I think so. I mean, I, I would love to see more, niche players become more successful. Unfortunately, in the enterprise, we're always battling against money and brand recognition, despite everyone's PR attempts to claim that we're about quality. Uh, Thomas says there are consultancies between independents and the GSIs. Yes, of course, there's a lot of boutiques, and and I'm Bonnie's doing a lot of research on those, I'm sure. So. Uh, yeah, Mark, and, and, and the independents also include, you know, those with a larger footprint as well. The global can, I, I, we kind of have to put them in a, a little bit of a larger category there. Um, but right. the, when it says global consultancies, those are, um, you know, one of a handful of firms. Mark Sweeney says that's because the global SIs pay the software vendors huge amounts of money. The vendors need GSIs as they often have C-level relationships and can open doors to the boredom. And, and Mark, I would add, I'm not going to pick on any particular vendor right now about this, but I would add that a lot of the global SIs are more powerful than the vendors they serve. And that's and that's one of the biggest problems is that the vendors have trouble achieving quality and project accountability in their ecosystems because they cannot hold these SIs to account because the SIs actually are more powerful than they are. Um, this, by the way, is one of Jared's talking points. So Jared, if you're listening and you're comfortable uh, front porch retirement scenario, then uh, that's for you, buddy. 
and Josh says the problem with the smaller SI staying small is that they're all too often acquired. Yeah. Well, the acquisition game. Yeah, Josh, but you know, um, I would point out that almost no one is safe from the acquisition game. Um, look at Slack. <laughs> you can be a pretty big company, get acquired. Acquisitions are part of the headaches of our industry that we kind of have to kind of have to live with. But but to your point, yes, smaller SIs can certainly be acquired. So, Bonnie, shall we go through some of your your top ten? Yeah, and 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 feel free to keep the keep the uh, snark and comments flowing. But we are going to actually go through what we have here is um, ten uh, list uh, that that are going to also incorporate some of the trends that you're seeing. So, uh, which one you want to start with? Um. So let's start with the number one most important question. Uh, did I receive the value that I anticipated for this project? So did I get the end result um, that I wanted? Um, and we asked that question of our customers and they can either answer, yes, I got the full value. Um, I got partial of the value I expected, or I, I did not receive the value that I expected. So it was less. Um, and what we're finding is that about a, it's split a third, a third, and a third. So one third said, yes, we achieved all the value that we thought we would going in. A third said they got some of the value. And then a full third said that they did not get the value from the project that they anticipated. And the, the correlation there, like the, how should I say, the, the metric that ties in with that is, is, and this is like no shocker, but the higher the overall satisfaction of a project the more likely they were to say that they realized value from that project. So that that's my that was that's our number one question. Did you get the value from this this project? And, and what what do you make of those stats? Um, you know, I I, um, I I think that they are indicative of you know of these enterprise software projects in general. Mm. I'll tell you, I think the larger question. Uh, that every decision maker should be asking themselves is, is like, did I solve a problem that was actually worth solving? And, you know, some of these, you know, projects, you get to the end of it and, you know, people check the box, we completed it, we went live, you know, this was our end result and, and things like that. But, you know, sometimes implementing these systems, you know, people sort of miss the plot in the end because the project takes so long and it's so arduous to, to implement by the time that they're done, you know, a year later, 18 months later, you know, they have a new problem. So I, I think a big question, I don't know that we can put, anybody can potentially measure this is, you know, but a, a decision maker should really be asking themselves, did this technology change solve a problem that was worth solving? Indeed. And I think the other thing I would take from this information is that success is not a given. I mean, I think we all understand that, but it's it's very obviously clearly not a given, which really broaches the the sort of big goal of, of this show, really, which is to start identifying much more clearly what the true characteristics of success are. Yeah. Uh, from, from LinkedIn user, you're asking about exactly who the top firms are and their names and stuff. I don't want to waste time on that with the limited time we have left with Bonnie today, but feel free to ping her if you have some questions on that. But I would just point out that, that the Indian SIs are also a big piece of this puzzle still for a lot of companies as well. So, you know, I'm not going to rattle them all off here, but 
but you know whether it's the Infosys or you know Cognizant or what have you, Wipro, they're out there too. So, um, and Thomas says, uh, how long after the go live of the product did you ask this question? Yeah, um, it it really depends. I mean, the quicker that we can get a review done on a project that just went live, the better. Um, but we will take a review up to. 18 months in look back. Um, so typically, typically the majority of these reviews come in a quarter after completion. Um, but we, you know, at Raven, we'll take, if, if we can vet the person, we do a lot of verification to make sure that it's a legit review and it's a legit person and project. Um, but it, we'll take something as far back as 18 months that they can credibly identify issues um, or the, you know, credible incredibly go through the review itself for any who are just joining we are with bonnie tinder of raven intel and she is you've come in a good time because she's now going through her top 10 telltale metrics to know if a project was a success or failure these 10 questions are a good indicator of how well you did or not bonnie what's your next one um i'm not going to go in order here but uh, i think another really um indicative um, or indicator of success was, did my team stay intact? And I can tell you when I see a review come in and we ask the question, did your team change? And if they did change, to what degree did they change? A little, a lot, et cetera. If I see a review that comes in that had a lot of team change, I can almost guarantee the, the project has uh, is rated low and did not achieve, um, you know, milestones in terms of on budget, on time, you know, some of the the discrete um, uh, question, you know, um, uh, the discrete measurements that we have. And um, so if a team is changing during the course of a project, um, that that creates all kinds of problems. And if it's, you know, a problem because the SI is changing out resources and, and things like that, um, you know, that's, that's when customers really get grumpy. So, you know, team change, a big deal. Yeah. And one really interesting thing about this too, is I still see companies that hold back on putting their best people on some of these teams out of a fear that they're going to get recruited now that they've acquired these more marketable skills. And I, I would acknowledge that as a risk, though, I'd make the argument that if you're going to run your company that way, you're eventually going to wind up with a lot of underachievers uh, because you're going to lose good people, but you're also going to attract good people. But do you, do you see some of that coming up as well, as far as like people kind of worried about losing their good people? Oh, all the time. Um, and, you know, I have, you know, we, we work directly with the, the SIs as well. And there's lots of the SIs that don't want their actual consultant names Um Provide it. The customer says, oh, you know, XYZ person really was a, a contributor to my success. I've gotten lots of calls from SI saying, can we take that off the review? Because I don't want to, my, my good people to get poached. We've worked too hard to keep them. Um, so, so definitely, uh, you know, turnover is a huge issue um, in, in terms of top talent. What I, so in general, what we see is that teams change from the SI perspective about 40% of the time. And 10% of the time, a customer will say the team changed a lot. So not only did I have one project manager, I had two or three and things like that. Um, so in those cases, um, 
you know, that that's 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 really problematic. I saw Brian had a question earlier about, you know, are SIs going to um, you know, see churn as a result of um, you know, some of the the greater economic um, you know, things happening right now. Um, I haven't impending later shortage. Yeah. Will SI rankings get hit? Um, I haven't seen that yet. Um, but what I have seen are a lot of movement of consulting uh, consultants from firm to firm, um, especially like in, in Q1, Q2 this year. Yeah, Thomas earlier said he was a fan of agile methodologies to the important urgent stuff first. You know, it's interesting because I I don't think that agile as a sort of very strict methodology works in every situation. I think we kind of have blurred the lines between agile as a methodology and this notion of being agile, which is obviously important. But one thing I will say is I'm seeing more and more successful projects who don't wait on the major go lives till the end. Like I'm seeing more and more um, companies taking bigger risks early on in projects for the precise reason that they don't want to wait years to get the bulk of their key users on board. So it's kind of a trend I'm seeing in my case studies that I do, which yeah. kind of plays into Thomas's point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brian has another question we didn't get to earlier. As travel restrictions ease, will clients want to see more of their integrators on site? It's kind of interesting. Like that question of FaceTime, we've gotten pretty good at a lot of remote stuff, but then I think there's also things remote isn't as good for. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think time will tell. I think a lot of consultants who are used to traveling are getting sick of being at home. So I think it's almost like the consultants want to be out on site with clients. Um, I think it really depends on the environment of, uh, you know, the, the company. And if they're moving to, a, you know, back and you know, bringing their employees back on site, then I think they're going to want to to have more of that face to face. But I, but I, at least from what I've, I've heard from customers is that they like this idea of, you know, remote work themselves. And so, you know, if they can, they can continue on that path. We, we saw no um, how should I say, drop in quality of implementations because of, you know, a distributed work environment last year. Yeah, and Brian is saying um, staff won't necessarily get post if their employers give them a career yeah. path that treats them well. Mark yeah. Sweeney, who's had a lot of good comments today, has a similar thing. If you focus on making your best people even better, they're constantly challenging them. Positive culture, then your attrition is often fairly low. It's specific to the SME community, and and I'm I'm agreeing with all that, but I'm also I'm I'm also saying that that good companies can can handle some risk of attrition because they're good at attracting top talent. Also, so I just think in general you just have to embrace this idea of you know don't don't hide your best people because uh, that's that's going to be a huge mistake in the end. Thomas has a really good one for you, Bonnie. Can there really be an ROI on projects after three months? Here we go, putting you in the hot seat. Yeah, and it's a and and Thomas, it's a question that we ask. Can I quantify? And this is one of my uh, points. Point number seven. Can I quantify the business impact that was made? And what I will tell you is, and we ask for return on investment, so a dollar amount. And I will tell you, in general, we don't see a lot of return on investment in terms of hard dollar savings. Now we're looking at things sort of right after go live. So you don't expect to see those hard dollar savings right away, at least in the short term. Um, I think a lot of these projects though, 
are, you know, the, the measurement needs to be beyond just return on investment, you know, hard dollar wise, it's efficiencies or it's, um, you know, the ability to decrease their turnover rate or, you know, all any number of these impacts that a digital transformation for. So you do not see um, dollar amount wise, like a huge savings from any of these projects across the board. And there's, there's definitely some that will say that, but um, I think, you know, customers need to look more broadly than hard dollar savings that what, what did I gain in this, in this project exercise? Yeah, I've seen a number of interesting projects in the last year where one of the big benefits was creating a platform where business users were better able in the future to automate their own workflows without having to go through IT, for example. And so that's a good point as far as like, you're not going to measure that after three months. That's that's a benefit that you're going to have to continue to extract and, and push for, but but it's there for you. And yep. in general, I think companies aren't doing enough to extract the value from the modern platforms that they put in. Yep. But I would think that you would have to measure that more over years to see who's really, really extracting the most value. But it is interesting, though. I think you still have to try after three months and see how far you've gotten, right? So, Well, and you're not going to have the, the, the huge, you know, um, returns early on, but at least you should have those you know, stake in the ground metrics that you're going to be looking at over time. Mm -hmm. All right, Bonnie, let's continue with more from your, your top 10 uh, product success characteristics. What, what else jumped out? Um, So we started asking a new question this year. So we added one question to our review form um, and I wish we had it for, you know, previous years, but we asked the customer the question, how likely am I to buy more software or services after this project, right? And um, the important thing and what what really was for me why I wanted to to add this is I wanted to see was there a correlation between highly rated projects and customers willing to buy more software? And um, no shocker, no shocker, those who rated projects highest, so a nine or a 10 out of 10 in the overall satisfaction about the projects, we're three times more likely to purchase more software from the vendor. And um, so I, I want to just unpack that for a second. So highest projects, three times more likely to buy more software from the vendor. We talked and somebody mentioned it earlier that, you know, the GSIs, um, you know, bring in more revenue um, for, you know, for, for the software vendors. And in some cases, they're, they're bigger than the software vendors. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, these sort of measurements, so if they have SIs implementing their stuff that rate higher on a project in terms of overall success, they should, software vendors need to be measuring how much, you know, what's the outcome of these projects and the, the most positive experiences that their SIs are delivering, those customers are three times more likely to buy more software from them, Other, you know, you know, on the, the inverse uh, side of the question, if they, if those who rated projects low, so a seven or less, overwhelmingly said that they would not be likely to purchase more software from that vendor in the mm-hmm. future. So it really behooves software vendors to monitor the partner um, quality that's that's going on, because that ultimately leads to more revenues for them later on. 
Yeah, and that's a really great example of, you know, I remember talking to a vendor recently that's in high growth mode, and I said, the thing that's going to get in your way in the long run is, is your project quality goes downhill and you start taking on partners that are not as capable to try to keep up with your growth and you lose track of the accountability that you've had so far. And to your point, it backfires immediately because now you're not selling any more software. And that's pretty huge now because it used to be that you sold like a whole suite of software at the same time. But now we're much more in the area, especially in cloud HCM, for example, of customer success initiatives where you're going to sell a piece of your software and then look to sell more. And so you're not selling your whole suite all at once generally. And, and even if you are, you're only implementing it gradually. And while you're doing that, you're still vulnerable to having other software vendors with a piece of that functionality come in and say, hey, we've got better product, better partners, better user experience. So if you can't reinforce that, like to your point, you're, you're not going to sell more software. So hopefully yeah. that stats a good wake up call. And I look forward to seeing that question in future surveys as well. It sounds like a yeah. good one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Brian uh, says software buyers shouldn't re-implement the same tasks and process. They should get consultants who can reimagine work. I think so, Brian, but I would argue even further that, that, that software, the proper software should empower people who can so-called reimagine work to actually implement those new processes without having that be some kind of major undertaking. You should be able to build uh, apps very quickly and build new workflows very quickly that they can help you to actually make that work better. And uh, by the way, uh, read some of Brian's stuff on Diginomica on things like return to work and, and sustainability because these things tie in directly. Brian's got a new sustainability piece coming out on Monday that's a must-read. So there's a Diginomica plug for you. But anyhow, um, the point being, the software should empower, not just make it possible to reimagine, but put it in quickly, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Open source and Git humming have changed the software vendoring process. Yeah, I, I wish they changed it more. I mean, I, I, you know, I think some people cite this open source revolution. I, I haven't quite seen it that way, but I do think it has certainly put some pressure on vendors, which is good. More pressure is always good. Okay, we still have some more from your countdown. What, what do you want to do next? Yeah, um, another question. So, how well was the project scoped, and did I have a lot of change orders during the process? Um, and that's one of the, the ratings that we have. We ask customers, you know, did you have change orders during the process? And 60% of the time they have change orders. Um, ah, the dreaded change order. Yes. Yes. Now, now are all change orders definitively evil or is there a certain percentage of them that are actually inevitable and necessary? What is your take on that? Yeah, I would, I would say 38% of the time of those change orders, the customer said, Hey, it was us that changed the scope of the work. It was not the fault of, you know, an aggressive, um, you know, partner who, um, you know, came in lowballed and then, you know, put in 15 change orders um, to be more expensive. So, um, you know, 38% of the time that was the customers, um, you know, doing. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of things that you just don't know before you start a project. So some change orders, you know, customers that have some change orders, you know, we don't see like a huge correlation between change orders and satisfaction, except in the case of when they answer the question to say we had multiple change orders. When a customer has multiple change orders, there is correlation that that project is going to be rated lower. 
which gets to Mark Sweeney's cynical comment. <laughs> Change orders is how large SIs milk the account, which is sort of what he's getting at. There's a point at which the change order becomes uh, a poor excuse for not having a, 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 a honest scope of the product in the first place. Yeah. And, and Brian's and, uh, point too, many yep. are due to the vendors not doing the quality proposal prep ahead of time and rushing through discovery, but without a doubt. Any other insights from that change order stat that we didn't cover? Um, did you get it all? I think we got it all. So, so, okay. so, so I'll tell you the, the two other stats um, that are sort of hand-in-hand sort of measurements. And they're, the, they're, they're simple measures, right? Was the project completed on time? And was it completed on budget? And we, we talked a little bit earlier about that. Was it completed on time? And that is not indicative of success on its own. Um, you know, nor is like, was the project on budget? Because a lot of, in a lot of cases, it's the customer who changes the work or the customer was, you know, the customer had um, something happen where the project got delayed or, um, you know, they added to the scope of, of things. And so when they said that project is, is late or over time, it really depends on, you know, what were, what were some of the reasons for that? And if it was because the project was under scoped and, um, you know, the vendor didn't do a, a proper discovery, you know, that's in, the, in those cases, that's, that's not good. Um, but in, in some cases, you know, it's, you got to look at those two measurements in the context of everything else. Because if you hit the, if you got the value from that project and you were late and over budget, um, you know, provided that you didn't, like you weren't too much over budget, um, where, you know, all of a sudden that's, you know, red flags to, you know, your, your leadership team, um, you know, getting, getting the value from the project is, is really one of the most important measurements. Yeah, I kind of like I like where this conversation goes with it because it's like, well, on time and on budget, they're definitely interesting, right? Because you you do want to measure that. But like if I were to say, if you gave me a choice between an on-time project, say with 20% user adoption versus a four-month late project with 80% user adoption, I'm taking the 80% user adoption every time. Without a um, doubt. But but it is still interesting because you also can't be dismissive about being delayed, especially because maybe it points to what Mark is talking about here about customers not being educated enough and, and not realizing lowball prices. And at some point, you do have to get better at, at scoping out what it is you're doing and knowing how long it will take. So I, I don't think those metrics are irrelevant. It's just I would make the argument that they're not a complete picture, but they're still useful. Um, mm-hmm. So do you have another one? You said you had a couple more that fit into that group. Did we cover them all? Um, you know, I, I um, yeah, no, I, I think, I think we, we covered those. I just wanted to add one thing cause I just thought of it and um, you know, it, it goes back to the point um, about, I don't think customers that Mark makes are, I don't, customers don't always know, um, and recognize what a lowball price is. I think that really plays into the importance of of getting, you know, uh, competitive bids because then you can you can look and see, um, you know, how how does this stack up against some other options and see, you know, is this a true lowball or not? Um, you know, we look at we don't just isolate one project review. So we're looking at overall trends for a firm based on multiple projects. And I, so, 
So we look at averages to say what's an on-time delivery, what's an on, what, what's a, the rate of service delivery overall for a, a vendor um, based on you know 25 projects that we have, and it's really those numbers that start to get interesting when you can look at multiple projects because all of a sudden you can see patterns, and I see patterns with firms all the time, um, and you can probably guess what 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 they are, but um, you know the patterns and percentage on time on budget delivery um, after we have a set of reviews really does become indicative of the way that they approach their engagements. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting Thomas's point about how he um, customers don't always want to hear the right price. He's seen often enough. They initially just go for the lowest price. I find that very interesting because it's kind of like if you had to get some important surgery would you would you like call your spouse and say, "Hey, great news! I found this doctor. We'll do it for super cheap." You know, uh, going to go with the low price. It's like, uh, did you take the expertise of the physician into account? You know, uh, maybe maybe a plastic surgeon isn't the best for open heart surgery. You know, it's like, and and I think with with projects, what I'm always looking for is like, do you trust the partner? Do they have the expertise? And what kind of relationship do you have? And it's really sad when you when you see it comes down to price in the end because it's like oh my goodness, I'll bet your outcome's not going to be that good. Anyway, that's just me going yeah. off. Yeah. Um, and and, and then, we we ask a question about how did you choose the vendor? What were the factors? When price was the only measurement of I'm sorry, when price was the the top driver for a choice, those projects are typically done. Um, you know, the status, overall satisfaction is lots lower with those driven by price and on time on budget delivery is always lower too. So there's a correlation when you use price as your main driver. Indeed. And uh, Mark just made a really, you know, classic point around that you really have to bring the people along with you. And I think you actually have a stat about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it wasn't stat. It was more like the, the biggest learnings. Um and the wisdom, you have some interesting quotes there. Do you want to share some of the learnings? Those are some of those hit on Mark's point, I think. For sure. So, um, so another one of these postmortem telltale metrics or questions are what were the biggest learnings about the project? And can I share this wisdom with others? Okay. And so here's a couple of them that we got this year. I promised John I would bring the most shocking ones. Um, All right. To the table. So I'm ready to get shocked. Yes. Yes. Um, so more details. So th- this is the lessons learned. More details in the project plan and specs in the deliverables. We wanted best practices in what other companies have done or what's worked in the past. We didn't get it. Involving the right people, both on the vendor side and the customer side. And that was a uh, manufacturing customer who implemented an ERP. Um, the uh, another shocking one that we got, um, and this was their lessons learned, were much was promised and little was realized. Ouch. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was not a, a positive review that we got this year. Um, and uh, so uh, versus, let me let me I'm going to give you a, a positive one. Um, So this customer said, selecting an ERP system that is flexible and within budget can be a formidable challenge. We would be in serious trouble if it wasn't for our consulting firm. 
Um, as a chief information officer, the time, pain, and cost of implementation um, was worth it knowing that they were committed to my success. So in that case, they felt like their consulting firm like was worth the investment and, you know, and, and was, you know, made that ERP uh, system actually go. So that was a positive one. Yeah. You had a good one too, around a statement of work. The uh, feedback around it was easy to agree on a statement of work. I like that one too. Yep. Yep. It was easy to agree on a statement of work with this consulting firm. They assigned a consultant that was extremely qualified. Imagine that. Imagine that. Yeah. A consultant that was extremely qualified who actually stuck with the project and it wasn't a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to know that there are definitely some successes out there, right? I mean, it would be a pretty depressing world if 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 that wasn't achievable. Oh, well, I'll tell you, you look out on Raven Intel. I mean, we have, I would say this year, if I had to just put a broad brush on it, you know, 60% of the reviews that had have come in this year have been really positive. I mean, it's it's very encouraging to see, I, I think, uh, you know, customers satisfied with, with projects. So, you know, in general, I don't think it, it's absolutely not all bad news. But lots of room to improve for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would argue still too much falling back on incumbent, software vendors and incumbent SIs as opposed to opening it up. But that's Mm -hmm. just my particular view. Bonnie, we kind of jumped around in your 10. Did we miss any of them? I'm kind of trying to go through them now to see if we skipped over any. Yeah. I, you know, I think we really, we we hit the, the most important ones. Um, But you know, the 10th question that I had, and we can maybe finish with this one is, is where do I go from here? And that is, um, you know, the end of the implementation or the go live is is really just the beginning. And certainly that's what the consulting firm is hoping for. Um, But it really is just a part of the journey. And a good implementation is the foundation for success with that software later on. Um, But it's like, okay, so you, you hit your go live milestone. What is it going to take to make that you know, adoption rate go from 20% to 80%, you know, and what's, what, what's next for this project to make sure all the hard work that you put in doesn't just sort of fizzle out and keeping that momentum going, it's challenging, but on the other hand, you want to, you want to build on success or fix a failure if it wasn't, if it wasn't, you know, the best experience. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I'm, I'm going to update this post at some point soon, but I did a cloud ERP benefits realization thing that was kind of steps. And it was both inspiring and depressing because the inspiring part is how much benefits could be achieved in an advanced way. The depressing part was how a few companies had realized it, even if they had gone live. And one of the big things I think that comes up now, Bonnie, is that, okay, do our customers thinking about the data platform aspects to this? Like, are they thinking about, well, with this more plugged in software with more users, perhaps, and perhaps more sensors tied in, can I get better analytics out of this? Can I start making better decisions? Like, you know, to me, those are really big, important questions. So that when you're thinking about software, you have to think about this bigger context of, of how can I run my business better and adapt better? And, 
that's I think unfolds over a longer period of time. So it's less and less to me about replacing transactional systems and more more about like how do I serve my end customers better in this really heated difficult market and and how you know I just did a piece today on like uh, uh it was a uh, a supply chain uh, customer Mars in this case that had figured out how to do better demand forecasting by pulling new data on who their end customer was instead of trusting their distributors to give them that information. That's not just a software thing. That's we're running more modern software, but now we're also trying to extract better data. And then there, of course, there's a whole AI conversation around that too, right? Around automation. And so to me, that's what gets really interesting is to start framing these projects in much bigger terms than just, Oh, we went live and now our software is running better. Yeah. Without a, without a doubt, or, you know, it's the newest spangled, you know, blockchain or I'm not I'm kidding about blockchain, but cloud, yeah, exactly. you know, it has AI. Yep. Mark says drive insights, better informed decisions and adapt quickly to the chain, ever changing consumer market. It never ends. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And that's good for all of us, Mark, because we do need careers. Not all of us can retire this week like Jared did. So, uh, we're going to we're going to need to have careers. I think Bonnie, you're going to be busy for a while cuz there's going to be a lot of crummy projects out there for some time to come. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of poor decisions on services partners that you're going to be able to document, but also hopefully uh hopefully some good ones and like we can shine a light on customers that are doing this the right way. We want to give customers a voice to feel like they can inform others um and you know, have leverage if you know with within a, a project to say I'm I'm, I'm going to rate this. You know, and the best consulting firms, the best consulting firms are ones that want to run toward that transparency. I can tell a good consulting firm from a mile away with how open they are to getting reviewed by customers. And I have I've I've seen it all in the last three years. I've seen um, you know consulting firms that really don't want to get reviewed at all. But I'll tell you, I've seen many amazing ones that I would recommend to any customer because they're the ones who will open up their Rolodex and say, like, talk to any of my customers. And it's like those, I mean, honestly, those are the SIs that I want to amplify because I know customers are going to have a great experience if they go with them. Yeah. And, and to those who are kind of afraid of that level of transparency, I would just say it's coming. It's inevitable. Just, just look at every single market. We're seeing the, the inroads of, you know, user reviews and you and transparent user ratings. So, you know, you might as well play nice now and, and work with a nice firm like Raven Intel, or else you're going to get something more like Glassdoor. Where people can just leave bombs in the open domain. Yeah. Uh, Mark Sweeney says customer advocacy is everything in this game. Well, absolutely. I mean, to me, it's, it's not the only way to make money in the enterprise, but it's the best way to make money in the enterprise because it's, <laughs> it's the way where you feel good when you go to bed at night. And, uh, and, and so I, I applaud anyone who's trying to do that. It's actually not easy to do. It sounds easy to be a customer advocate, but when you really commit yourself to it, it's not easy to do in the end. There's a lot of money pushing in other directions. Um, uh, you say about blockchain, do not be afraid. Well, in the enterprise context, if you mean enterprise blockchain, I'm not afraid at all because none, no blockchain product has gotten out of the proof of concept stage and into a live production at scale. So I'm not afraid it doesn't exist. So 
Um, I just, I just not, I'm not wasting time on it because I'm not afraid of it. It just, it's not relevant. When it's relevant, we'll talk about it. Until then, there's a bunch of cryptocurrency use cases you can dig into, and there's probably a LinkedIn Live on cryptocurrency right now after this one, so you can just skip right over from this to that and talk blockchain until dinner time. Um, <laughs> Bonnie, Bonnie, did we miss anything? <laughs> did was there anything else you wanted to get across today that we didn't cover? I. Wow, John, we covered a lot of ground. I think we hit all 10 and more. And I love the insights from, from Brian and from Mark and, and the rest of the um, the audience here. Because Yeah, think, yeah, you know, we, had a, we had a really vocal and worthwhile group of participants in the chat as usual, but especially I think today. Great job. Uh, Bonnie, we'll hang out for a couple more minutes just to give our, our audience members who contributed a chance to get their final uh, shots in if you have a final question for Bonnie now is your chance although I'm sure Bonnie I have a funny feeling she'll be back in the chair again so this won't be the last time but last time for a while in the meantime I certainly wish you luck on your taking over Jared trains in the LinkedIn group and that should be fun thank you and I, I would say to um, this audience please join in the conversation in that group as well um, you know with uh, really your your input um, because that's going to add to the richness of that that community go forward yeah i mean i think the good thing is that jared built those communities up to have some real value and that's not easy to do in linkedin groups most linkedin groups are real cesspools so uh and hey mark uh thanks thanks a lot um glad you were here today you brought a lot definitely make a point of coming back again i'm here most fridays around this time um, not every single friday because Frankly, it takes uh, a bit of prep to do this show, and it's a labor of love. There's no monetization involved in this in this video project, so it's there's not. Nope there there is <laughs> no there's no sponsors. I've been asked by many of our partners like we want to be on the show, and I'm like, no, this is actually an independent gig because I think we need that in this industry. So, um, Bonnie, you have some fans. Someone great interview. Agreed. Indeed. Yes. Thank you. Thanks thank a you lot for playing. digging into this data with us. And Thomas also, thank you for being here. Thanks, in fact, Tom. I will I will do the formal applause for Bonnie. <laughs> this is uh not it's not the easiest format on my show, but uh but it's I, I think it's a good one for those who are who are up for uh, feel being in the hot seat. So thanks a lot, Bonnie. Looking okay. forward to what you learn next and we'll see you soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, everyone. See you next time. Have a good weekend.